Our scripture now is Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 5, 1 to 4. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach you because our great mediator Christ has accomplished redemption for us. Thank you that he is a great high priest and even a better high priest, the perfect high priest that makes us accessible to you, brings reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, Father, teach us the greatness of this truth, that we need redemption and that there was nothing in the past that could redeem us, only the blood of Christ. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Well, when we come to this passage, our apostle is continuing to describe the priesthood. In the previous passage, at the end of chapter 4, he described elements of the priesthood in order to encourage us to pray and to come to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. He encourages us to pray in that sense. Now he's going to continue discussing the role of the priest, the high priest. Here in this passage, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, he describes what was true of Aaron and Aaron's descendants, the males in his family, in his lineage, who were called to be the priests, the high priests from the time of Aaron, in the time of Moses and Aaron, and then until the time of Christ. And then in the next passage, verses 5 to 10, Hebrews 5, 5 to 10, he will describe Christ. Christ and how Christ is superior to Aaron. Christ is above Aaron. In verses 1 to 4, we have described the imperfect high priest, the imperfect high priesthood, because they are mere men. They are not the Son of God. They do not have the qualities of the Son of God in order to be the ultimate and only sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins. The scriptures are often, from beginning to end, the scriptures often will contrast one way with another way. The scriptures will often contrast, as it does in this passage, Aaron to Christ. In verses 1 to 4, it's Aaron and his descendants, and then Christ in verses 5 to 10. The scriptures often contrast one matter with another, because this is the way of learning. This should not surprise us that this is the way of learning spiritual and eternal things, because we learn these things even in day-to-day life. We need to know the difference between one, two, three, so forth, because if we don't know the difference in our numbers, we cannot manage from day-to-day. We need to know the difference in many other areas of life as well, in practical areas. We not only learn what is good and right, we not only learn what is big, but we also learn what is small. We not only learn what is light, but we learn what is darkness. In many areas of life, we need to know and understand the contrast. Well, it is this idea of understanding a contrast or understanding a lesser thing to understand a greater thing that has been woefully lacking in the Christian church. In fact, 
There are people, as, as recently as the re recent days, who have announced that it is unnecessary or uh, improper to understand the Old Testament or even to have the Old Testament in our Bibles. In fact, one major pastor, Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, well-known pastor Charles Stanley, his son, Andy, has announced that Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament for our faith. He used that phrase, to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, if he and many others, the first heretic, major heretic in the Christian church was Marcion, around AD 150, he was saying things like this and all kinds of other related issues in order to reject and denounce the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament and the way of salvation in the Old Testament. Well, what's the problem when heretics such as Marcion and his successors, what is the problem that they have that they misunderstand? They misunderstand the lesser for the greater or the lesser to the greater. They misunderstand the contrast. They misunderstand the purpose of the Old Testament. They misunderstand that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. They misunderstand that the God of the Old Testament is holy and they don't want that holiness in the New Testament. They misunderstand that the Old Testament people were sinful and just as we are sinful. They don't understand those kinds of comparisons and contrasts. They also misunderstand the fact that the Old Testament in fact does announce the gospel. It announces the gospel in many illustrations, many shadows and types. Many outlines of the gospel are in the Old Testament preparing the people and teaching the people to anticipate the coming of Christ into the world to die and rise again for our sins. They think that the Old Testament does not contain the gospel at all, so there's no need to study the Old Testament. Furthermore, they also fail to see that the Old Testament prophecies of our future, our future, some of them have yet to be fulfilled. Well, how will we know to anticipate those things yet future to us unless we read those passages of the Old Testament? We have to. We have to understand them in order to proceed in our Christian faith. And lastly, the perilous notion that we ought to reject the Old Testament contradicts passages of the New Testament which teach the opposite. For example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Right there, the apostle Peter says that we need to remember, and he, when he says remember, he doesn't mean in a vague way. He means remember in terms of knowing what it says, believing what it says, and obeying what it says. Remember the holy prophets and the apostles. That's his designation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He commands us to do so. So if he commands us to do so, there is no way, no theology, no doctrine that can jettison and set aside and discard the contents of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important because it prepares us for the gospel and illuminates the gospel, gives many illustrations of the gospel. Well, in that regard, we have our passage before us now. 
Hebrews 5, 1 to 4, actually does remind us of the preparatory nature of the Old Testament. Let's see. Verse 5. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. When he says every high priest taken from among men, he's talking about Aaron, as he mentions him in verse 4. From the time of the book of Exodus onward, when Moses and Aaron delivered the people out of Egypt, God instituted a priesthood, a priesthood of sacrifices. When God did so, he took, as it says in verse 1, he, he took men from among men. Aaron was a man. We have his genealogy in, in Exodus chapter 6. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Levi. He was among the 12 tribes. And his family, the tribe or the family of Aaron, was selected by God to be the tribe of the priesthood or the family of the priesthood, Aaron's family. He was taken from among men. In contrast, we will see next time that Christ was a son. He was the son of God, as it says in verse 8. Although he was a son, he was the son of God, the perfect, spotless son of God, not taken from among men as though his origin is from men, but he was taken from heaven and he came from heaven. He descended from heaven. Think for a moment. How could it be that the people of the Old Testament could have imagined and thought that because their high priest was taken from among men, therefore, that is the ultimate. That is the goal. That was the ultimate purpose of God in the work of the Old Testament and in salvation. How could they imagine that? How could they imagine that their ultimate mediator was a mere man, one of them, and not someone from heaven, not Christ himself? No, they would not have thought that. Unbelieving ones of the Old Testament would have thought that, but not the believing ones. The believing ones would have looked up to heaven to find their source of salvation, not from among their comrades on the earth who would die just like they would die. Then we see in verse 1 that the high priest is chosen in things pertaining to God. He's chosen in things pertaining to God. He's chosen for spiritual reasons. That means that whatever he does in the tabernacle and then in the temple, whatever he does in physical actions, whatever he does for sacrifices, whatever he does for incense offerings, whatever he does in the lighting of the candles, whatever he does to slay the animal, to put the blood on the altar and to sprinkle the blood, whatever he does in reference to festivals, in blowing the horn, in the blowing the trumpet, whatever he does physically actually has a spiritual significance because the physical is used as an illustration for the spiritual. This is why he says it's in things pertaining to God. God is spirit, John 4, 24. As well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 20. Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 20, Moses takes pains to tell the people not to worship an idol because God is invisible. God is intangible. He's invisible. He is spirit. He is not that which is material and physical. 
Therefore, they knew and they were told again and again that God is unseen. You cannot grab onto God. He is an, an, an unphysical, intangible being. So they would have known that when the priest does things physically, it is in order to connect the physical to the spiritual. These are things pertaining to God. Another matter, when it says it's in things pertaining to God, the priest would then be a mediator. Not everyone could walk up into the tabernacle and go into the holy place or go into the holy of holies, the most holy place. Not anyone or everyone could do that. Only certain priests uh, in the line of Aaron and then certain Levites from the tribe of Levi and even then the males among them, they were the only ones permitted to do certain activities, certain actions, certain sacrifices, certain preparations with the furniture and with the offerings and even with the offering on the Day of Atonement. There were only certain individuals who were selected. This is clearly illustrating the fact that the people generally need a mediator. They need a go-between. They need an advocate, someone who represents them, who has been prepared and called in special ways in order to represent them before God, in order to carry out and to execute things that they are not able to do that they need somebody else to do so in order to access God. They would have known that. So would that not have taught them? Well, if we need somebody in the line of Aaron to access God this way, why did God institute that? They would have known. The believers among them, they would have been taught by Moses and Aaron and everyone else that this is because we look for an ultimate mediator. We look for a perfect mediator, a perfect high priest, not an imperfect one that is selected among us. No, we need an imperfect one because the, uh, we need a perfect one because the imperfect one will not do. He is a mediator for the sake of comparison, for the sake of an illustration, to contrast who he is with the one that we actually do need to come into the world to save us from sin. Furthermore, it says in verse 1, he does these things in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is the one who receives from the worshiper, the people generally, he receives from the worshiper gifts and sacrifices. He receives free will offerings. He receives grain offerings. He receives various gifts, voluntary offerings like that in order to present them to God and in the worship of God and for the purposes of God, whatever the purpose is of a, of a specific gift that God has instructed. And the same with sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, the blood, the different kinds of sacrifices, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, various offerings presented in order to appease God. It would be they who do so, the mediators, the high priests who do so, when the worshiper brings those because he has been instructed to bring those. The gifts and the sacrifices were needed in order for the worshiper to be acceptable to God, to be reconciled to God, to have God's wrath appeased, for them to know, okay, 
I bring these offerings in faith. I believe in their true significance and I manifest my true belief by bringing a true offering. Just like Abel did, even before the time of Moses, Abel in Genesis 4, he had faith and he had the right offering. Cain did not have faith, therefore he did not have the right offering. Those who have uh, an offering to present to God bring so, if they bring it in faith, they bring the right one and God receives them. God lifts up their countenance, but he will not lift up the countenance of the one who does not offer it up in faith, as Cain is described. We also note that the gifts and the sacrifices have to be according to God's prescriptions. God's prescriptions. The gifts and the sacrifices cannot be willy-nilly. They cannot be whatever we fancy to bring to God. If God did not prescribe something to be brought to him, that should not be brought to him. This became a problem in the time of Malachi. In the time of Malachi, Malachi confronts the people for the kinds of sacrifices they brought to God. He says in Malachi 1.6, A son honors his father and a slave his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, To you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. The people thought they could bring a sick animal to God a blind animal, a lame animal, or whatever other kind of animal that God did not prescribe for them to bring. They were to bring unblemished animals, animals with no defect. That's the kind. And certain age, one-year-old or three-year-old, they needed to bring a certain kind of animal to God. And when they did not bring it to, like that to God, it was unacceptable. Unacceptable. Now, why? Why was the animal to be unblemished. Because Christ, it signified the fact that Christ would be unblemished, untainted, without any stain or mark, no sin in his life. He would be the perfect high priest, unlike the imperfect people, the high priest in the line of Aaron. He would be perfect. He would commit no sin, as it says in 4.15. He was tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. Or in Hebrews 7, 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Christ. He is untainted, unblemished, with any sin whatsoever. 
So when they brought gifts and sacrifices, it was to teach them that Jesus would come as the perfect Lamb of God. That's why John the Baptist said in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Further, we see it is for sins. The gifts and sacrifices were for sins, which he repeats in verse 3, to offer sacrifices for sins. This is a term that is less used today. It is not used very much today, the word sin, in public worship, in Christian circles, in many places. Nobody wants to talk about sin, and nobody wants to acknowledge the fact that we need God because of our sin. We need God's way of redemption in Christ because of our sin. And they also denigrate the cross of Christ by assigning the purpose of the death of Christ to something else. They say he just died as a martyr. He just died as a martyr. He was a zealous, he, he, a zealous man for what he believed, and he just died as a martyr. No, his death was not a substitute for our sins. He died a martyr's death. Others will say he died because he was a political rebel. He was a political rebel. He was trying to foment rebellion and insurrection against the Romans, and the Romans caught up with him, and some of his own people conspired with the Romans in order to get him executed because he was just an insurrectionist. He was rebellious against the Roman government. So he died a political death, they say. Others will say that Jesus died in terms of being a moral example of what God thinks about evil and sin and all the problems we have in this life. He died as a moral example. The moral government theory of the atonement. That is, that when he died on the cross, it just exposes to us and shows to us what God thinks of all of the trials and the troubles and the afflictions that are on the earth at this time. So it's just a moral example of what we ought to reject and follow good things. All we need is a good teacher, a teacher to guide us on the right path, the path of light. And once we're on this path of light because we have an illumined, enlightened teacher who will just guide us in the right way, by morality, we'll get to heaven. We'll all get there in one way or another. That's all we need. That's why the cross is there. No. The reason why the scriptures keep saying four sins in verse 1 and verse 3 has to do with substitutionary death. It has to do with a vicarious or substitutionary death that is someone, the Son of God, had to die in our place. He had to die in our stead. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, when the gospel is defined, it says 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins. He died in our place. We deserved punishment, but Jesus received that punishment. We had a great debt, but Jesus paid the penalty for our debt. He paid that debt so that we are unobligated anymore 
to pay that debt. He paid it on, in our behalf, in our place. We deserved it. And what we deserved, God did not and will not inflict upon us, but he inflicted it on his one and only son. This is why the Bible says, for sins, for our sins. That little preposition, F-O-R, for, does not mean any of the heretical views of the death of Christ. For means substitutionary, in our place, in our stead. He died so that we don't have to die. That's why it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because he died for our sins. He died for our penalty. So there's no condemnation upon us because we believe in him. Well, would the people of the Old Testament have understood this? Would they have understood that it was for their sins that they needed to offer sacrifices and that the sacrifices signified the death of Christ? That the animal itself, or even another person, a mere man, could not pay the penalty for their sins? Would they have known this? Would they have been taught this? The answer is definitely yes. Psalm 49. Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9. Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. There the passage says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. No one can give to God a ransom for another because the soul, the soul of another, the redemption of his soul is costly. That means that another man cannot pay for the sins of another man, mere man, regular man, normal man. Nothing like that can happen because that redemption is costly and there is no way to live forever to have life eternal life and not undergo decay that means permanent destruction there's no way to avoid any of that unless we have that costly redemption so naturally if no man can do it could an animal do it did the people understand that the animal itself could not redeem them of course they did. Of course they did, because if the man can't do it, then an animal cannot. This is why, this is why in Psalm 51, David says the following. In Psalm 51, David says, it's 5114, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God does not delight in sacrifice, He's not pleased with burnt offering. 
What does that mean? That means David, the prophet, man of God, understood that it was not the animal that would satisfy God. It only is helpful to offer the animal as a sacrifice in obedience to God when we understand the right purpose of that animal dying for our sins. That is, it would be for Christ coming and dying for our sins. That would be the only way. The animal itself is useless to pay for our sins. And then did they know that Christ would come into the world? Did they know that Christ would come into the world to be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice? Not the animals and not any regular human? Yes. Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 6. Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We know David is writing these words, but who is in this dialogue? There are two persons in this dialogue. Who are these two persons in the dialogue? We find in Hebrews chapter 10 the answer to our question. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Well, actually, let's begin at verse 4. Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what we've been saying. Verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, who is the he? That's Christ. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What's the point? The point is that when Psalm 40 was written by David, David is recording a dialogue between the father and the son. It is the son addressing the father and saying, even though I know you required and desired animal sacrifices to be offered. Remember, David is 500 years after the time of Moses. And Moses, Moses was also a successor of what God taught Adam and Eve and who taught Cain and Abel, who taught others in their lineage about animal sacrifice. So what is it when Jesus says, you have not desired sacrifice, animal sacrifice? He means as the ultimate payment for sin. The animals will not suffice. Another human will not suffice. Only Jesus' own death and resurrection suffices for the forgiveness of our sins. This is all taught in the Old Testament, all taught in those Psalms we read, Psalm 49, Psalm 51, and Psalm 40. It's all there. David understood these truths. He wrote these truths. Therefore, he would have taught, as a good prophet and teacher, he would have taught the people to believe in these truths.
He died for our sins. Further, we return to Hebrews 5 and verse 2. The high priest of the time, they are described. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. The ignorant and misguided, that is, he's talking about his countrymen. His countrymen are ignorant and misguided, led astray. And he himself can be gentle with them because he knows that he's just like them. He knows he is just like them. He sins just like they sin. When he says here, he's beset with weakness, he does not mean weakness in terms of human frailty. He does not mean that in that sense, mere human frailty as human finitude. He's not talking about human finitude, finiteness. He's not talking about that. He's talking about human sin. We know he's talking about human sin because he says in verse 3, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for the people and for himself. By weakness, he's talking about his own sins. He can deal gently with them because he's just like them. Now, in dealing gently with them, what will happen sometimes to him? What should happen is that he should be humble so he's not arrogant towards the people. That's what should happen. But what often happens with the high priest when he says, well, I'm just like they are, what will he do? <coughs> he will compromise and succumb to the way that the people live. And he will excuse their sin and say, well, I'm no better than you. And he will not take a stand. He will not stand up for truth and righteousness as he should. Because he has not made a, uh, or understood the significance of his position. But Christ was not like that, was he? Christ was not like that. In fact, he's contrasting how the high priest could deal gently with the people with how Christ did not deal gently with the people. Now, when Christ did not deal gently with the people, he's not talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness. He's talking about how Jesus made no compromise for sin. Correct? Whenever anybody sinned, whether it was the woman of Samaria, John chapter 4, he brought out her sin. Whether it was Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, he brought out his sin. Whether it was the blind man, the blind man in John chapter 9, that he healed, he brought out the man's sin. Or even one of his own disciples, Peter. When Peter said, forbid it, Lord, that this should happen to you, that Jesus should be persecuted, put to death, and rise again on the third day. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. What did Jesus say to Peter? When Peter was contravening the will of God, he said, get behind me, Satan. So in those instances, Jesus did not deal gently according to this definition of the term. He dealt forthrightly. He dealt harshly with the people because he had no room for their sin. He could not associate with their sin and would not associate with their sin. Therefore, he called it out. But the high priest was not like that. So... Why would the people want to have blind hope, blind faith in a high priest who was just a sinner just like them?
No. They would have longed for, the people of faith in the Old Testament would have longed for a better and perfect high priest who could pay and be the, the perfect mediator between them and God. That's what's said in verse 3 further about his sins. Verse 3, and because of it, because he is just like them, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. One clear example of this fact that he had to offer sacrifices for himself first and then for the people is the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement ritual, when they would, once a year, fast all day, and they would offer certain sacrifices, it was the priest who had to offer sacrifices for himself first and his family, and then for the people. It had to go in that order. Even in the dedication of the tabernacle and the dedication and inauguration of the priesthood, in Leviticus 9 and 10, it was the sons of Aaron, Aaron and his sons, who had to be prepared first before they could represent the people. They had to offer their sacrifices first before they could be representatives of the people. Why? Because they were sinners. They were obligated to do so. And this reminds us of the fact that they were imperfect, sinful priests designated by God. Therefore, they needed a sacrifice in order for them to be acceptable to God and to conduct the service of sacrifice, but not Christ. Christ, as we said before, he was without blemish. He was innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Hebrews 7, 26, without sin. Which one of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46 who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. No, he was spotless, untainted, without sin. And then lastly, verse 4 compares the call of God. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. No priest, no one in authority, takes authority upon himself. We are always suspicious of somebody who usurps authority. Somebody who walks up and stands up, who says something, and claims to be in a position of authority. When that person has not received a true call from God. And that call from God manifested and declared and noticed by the people so that the people understand this one or that one truly has a place of authority. In this case, no one takes this honor except if they are called by God. And Aaron was called by God. We know this from Exodus, that Aaron was called by God. Exodus and Leviticus, that Aaron was the one designated. So, Aaron receives a call from God God installs him into this office. Now, why would God do so? God does so because the one who is called is a subordinate, correct? The one who calls is the superior. We have the superior and the subordinate. 
So if there is a subordinate, what is his role and relationship to the superior? That should be a natural question, right? And that would be to be a perfect representative of God. If God calls him, then he needs to be a perfect representative of God. That's why he's called. He's not called to misrepresent God. He's not called to bring shame to the name of God, right? He's not called to sin against God and to bring great disgrace among the people. No, if he's called by God, he needs to represent God properly. Was Aaron that? Aaron himself, was Aaron that? No way. Remember Exodus chapter 32? Exodus chapter 32, Moses is on the mountain with the Lord and Aaron is with the people. What happens? The people are nervous and impatient and so they call on Aaron to make a golden calf, the kind of calves, calves that they saw in Egypt to worship one of them, but make a golden one, make it special. So Aaron, who knew better, succumbed to the temptation and permitted the people to make a calf, and he oversaw it. They made a golden calf. They worshiped that calf. They celebrated with food and with dancing and with play around an idol, a calf. Aaron did that. In that case, did Aaron properly represent his calling? Did he represent God properly? Absolutely not. He did not. So if Aaron, the first one, and who is in the line of Aaron in the priesthood, he would have been the most honorable of all the rest. Correct? The, the patriarch is more honorable than his descendants, unless there is something extremely exceptional in the descendant. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7. Who is more important, Abraham or Levi? The argument there is Abraham is more important than Levi because Abraham precedes Levi. Promises were made to Abraham and Levi is one of the recipients of the promise. Therefore, in the same way with Aaron, if Aaron is the highest one in honor and yet he failed so miserably in making an idol of gold and letting the people go loose and uncontrolled, in the worship of this idol, then who is better than Aaron? Who will never succumb? Who will never compromise? Who will never have this weak moment? Only Christ. Only Christ. This is why it says in Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is a psalm written by David but describes Christ, his kingship in verse 1, verses 1 to 3, and then in verse 4, his priesthood. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now why mention Melchizedek? Our apostle will mention him in verse 6. Quoting that psalm, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek will be explained further, especially in chapter 7. Now, how is it in the Old Testament now, we're talking about the Old Testament period, could the people and would the people of faith 
such as Moses, Aaron, David, Isaiah, and all the rest of them, could they and would they have understood Aaron to be a mere illustration of a perfect high priest? The imperfect Aaron, an illustration of a perfect high priest. Yes. Melchizedek is the answer. In the time of Abraham, Genesis 14, Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, 17 to 24. He appears to Abraham and he, Melchizedek, blesses Abraham and Abraham tithes to him. Melchizedek does not tithe to Abraham, but Abraham tithes to him. So in terms of position and representation, who was this Melchizedek who in these two instances, and he's also called priest of God Most High and King of Salem. Who was this individual who was superior to Abraham that would bless Abraham and Abraham would tithe to him? This was a, a prefigurement of Christ. This was an illustration of Christ. Christ was known to Abraham and Abraham believed in Christ. This means that Melchizedek's priesthood was better and superior to Aaron's priesthood. That's the argument of Hebrews 7. Because if Abraham was under the authority of Melchizedek, then that means Levi and Aaron under Abraham are also under the authority of Melchizedek. Furthermore, it means that Melchizedek and what he represents is an eternal priesthood of eternal consequences, so that if another priesthood arises after the time of Melchizedek, which it did 500 years later between Abraham and Moses and Aaron, 500 year difference, 500 years later, the Aaronic priesthood could not be superior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. It would have to be inferior to it. And if it is inferior, what does it represent? Why call Abraham? Abraham is called to help the people understand, once more, the types, shadows, illustrations, whatever we want to call it, to call what Aaron does as a mere figure and a mere representative of something superior, the fulfillment in Christ. Aaron is there to further illustrate the work of Christ, which Christ also was called, and we'll see that in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ was called by God as the Son of God to be the Son in human flesh and to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek to pay the penalty for our sins. I hope we've seen that the Old Testament has a place and that place is to predict, prophesy, and illustrate the coming of Christ. All of those were shadows and types they were there temporarily in order to drive us to Christ. Now we look to Christ because he of the, was the only hope of salvation for the patriarchs of the Old Testament. 
And he is also our only hope of salvation who look back to what he has accomplished. So let's always put our faith in Christ. Not any human, not any object, only Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.